Um, the rocks and stones themselves would sing your praises if we weren't here to sing them for you. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you for the, the magnificent gift of your, of your journey to the cross, um, your journey to Jerusalem that started this week so many years ago. Um, thank you for what you've done for us. Please um, open my mouth. Help me to speak your words um, and help your spirit to flow to every member um, of the church, everyone who's here, um, that uh, our, heart, our hearts may be opened and united with yours. In your name we pray. And you were dead in your trespass and sins, in what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the medical diagnosis, we call it intrauterine fetal demise. Stillborn. The condition, dead on arrival. Prognosis, hopeless. What does it mean to be stillborn? You know that it's a terrible thing, but, and I'd like to share it with you, but I don't have the words. So I want to share with you the words from this still grieving mother who can tell you what it means stillborn. Six years ago, you were born, Killian, so perfect, so chubby. I had no idea that babies could die for no apparent reason the very day they were to be born. I am still haunted by the never-ending questions. Why? Why us? How? What could I have done differently? And mostly, what would your life be like right now? Who would you look like? What sports would you like? Your dad was a sports nut, so I figure you probably would be too. Or sing like me, or so on, and so on. With each family event, I am reminded of what I continue to miss out on. The pain remains deep and my heart races and my blood pressure still boils when I think of those horrible doctors not listening, cutting your ear in two, almost like delivering some animal. Mommy's heart continues to break and knowing I will have to live with this hurt for the rest of my life, like so many others, makes me sick to my stomach. Mommy has aged from the sorrow in my heart. And on my face, I continue to see it and feel it deep within. On September 19th, the day before my birthday, it will be six years that you have been gone. I cannot imagine how I have even breathed without you. Being a caretaker of your grave is excruciating, only those who live it too can understand and how my heart also aches for them, our hopes, 
our futures, our dreams forever gone. Keeping faith is almost impossible at times because I do not understand how the loving God I thought I knew took you from me, leaving me so empty. Yet I have to muster the faith and believe somehow to get through it and hopefully, hopefully see you again one day. Not exactly fair, to say the least. I think of you every day of my life, Killian. People foolishly think we'll get over it. We never do. We only find a way to live because God has not taken us yet. My tears continue to flow, and with each passing year, wondering what you would be like will always remain. I love you with all my heart, and I miss you more than words can express. I have an empty heart without you, and will see you again one day. Love, Mommy. Now, I would have liked to leave out the part about the horrible doctors. That's my issue. But you'd have to be asleep. You'd have to be dead yourself not to hear the pain that this woman feels from the loss of her child. And I don't know how the ears got cut, but I can just imagine to you that this was a very, very tense, very tense scene. But six years out, there's no denying that pain is just as fresh and as raw as a wound as you could ever have. Now, I want you to imagine an entire world like that. You see, stillbirth isn't just a little accident, a little boo-boo that happens to us. It is the hopeless condition of a fallen world. Sin is something that you are. It's you're separated from God like a like a light that's unplugged. There's you're a temple for his grace and yet you have nothing to worship. You don't know God when you're born and you could care less. You're a temple with nothing nothing to worship and you are useless. As Jonathan Edwards once said, the heart of a natural man is as destitute of God as a dead, stiff, cold corpse is of vital heat. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see dead people. In your dreams, while you're awake. Dead people like in graves, in coffins, walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Now, I hate to spoil the ending of a good movie for you. 
okay? And if sometime in the last 15 years you haven't seen the sixth sense, you should probably close your ears. Like that. But the kicker, you know, Malcolm Crow, the, the uh, psychologist who's working with this boy, is very worried for him in this scene that he sees dead people while he's still walking around. He says, this boy is very hopelessly psychotic. But he comes to realize that indeed he is seeing dead people. But the real kicker comes when he realizes the message that I have for you today too. And that is that Cole Sear was talking about him. And he was talking about you. As it says in Revelation 3, uh, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. What's the difference? Trespasses and sin. Well, sin is this thing that we're born with, okay? Unplugged from God, not alive. But transgressions is a lot worse. Because, see, after we're dead... We start the process of rotting. Now, as he declared the war on terror, President Bush spoke out about the axis of evil. He said um, that there were these three rogue states that were, uh, that he, he felt that they were Korea, Iran, and Iraq. And uh, somehow we keep uh, wanting to redefine the axis of evil. Okay, it's sort of like a cosmic game of where's Waldo. But the problem is, this is a universal experience of man. We are, by nature, children of wrath. That is everybody on the planet, not some rogue state. But the good news is that there is a global war on terror. It's just not being waged by the United States of America. And there's also an axis of evil. And that's what, uh, that's what St. Paul talks about in verse 2 and 3. In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work, at work in the sons of disobedience, in, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the axis of evil represents these forces of corruption that are at work for us, the flesh, the world, and the prince of the powers of the air, that is, the devil. We are children of wrath by nature. We're born into a world in rebellion that nurtures 
this rebellious nature that we have, and we're encouraged all along by our coach whispering in our ear, telling us, true sons of disobedience. You know, our lives are characterized by this degenerate outlook, and we we just know that it's a dog-eat-dog world, so the have-nots get eaten, and so I'm going to go out and grab as much of it as I possibly can so that I feel safe. And we listen to the lies. You want to be who you can be. You can define yourself. You You can set your own priorities. You can make the world the way you want it to be. You know, it's funny. No matter how little we have of the Lord, we always seem to want just a little bit more of the world. You know, how much of the world does it take for you to feel safe? Like, how much of the world is rich enough? Is it when I have a million dollars? Two million? A hundred million? A billion dollars? Do you know what you need from the world to feel fulfilled? Not much. Just a little bit more than you have right now. You know when you get a little more than you have right now? Never. Now, the other thing that you need to know is that we're doomed with this, with this situation. Um, we're, by, by nature, objects of wrath, children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. We're doomed for punishment. Have you ever met a permissive parent? I have. Okay. I grew up, you know, I, I told you last week, I grew up in the 60s, right? And it was all peace and love and freedom and, you know, it's, you know, we just got to let their inner goodness come out. Okay? So there's a lot of parents out there, sometimes they come into my office, they bring in their kids and they're letting their inner goodness come out in my office, okay? And it's, it's quite disruptive. Um, well, God is not a permissive parent. God sets limits on your behavior, and he's made them very clear. And there's a punishment to be paid for violating those rules. And he insists that it be paid, but he's paid it for you. And that's the good news of the gospel. Now, that leads us to what God has done to us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, actually... Uh, You know, we were supposed to read Ephesians 1 through 10, and I actually asked Caleb to read a little bit more before that into Ephesians 1. And the reason, uh, Ephesians 2, wanted him to start in Ephesians 1. And the reason is, you know, ever since they broke up the Bible into chapters and verses, we sort of started looking at it as if they were autonomous units. So we've got this chapter, and then we've got this chapter, okay? Okay. This was one letter 
that Paul was writing to the Ephesians. He didn't break it up into chapter 1 and chapter 2. So the couple of paragraphs before chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 come right before it and they're connected to that thought. So if you look back there in chapter 1, you see that Christ has been risen from the death from death and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. He's been dead in your sins and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And you see here in verse 5, or verse 6, that, he's been, that we have been raised up with him and seated with God in the heavenly places. You see, it's the same miracle. The resurrection is what we get to participate in by our unity with Christ. So there's a, there's a logical connection. We were dead in our trespasses. Now we're alive in Christ. So that's what's made the difference. It's this miracle that gives you the new birth. That allows you to participate. We read, it's your, uh, we heard in our, in our uh, meditation song, it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Your favor, Lord, is our desire. It's your beauty, Lord, that makes us stand in silence. And your love is better than life. But you know, I think it should be your love is life. He is life. And he came and he did all these things so that we could have life and have it in abundance. We can't have that without him. There's no other way out of this stillborn connection that we enter the world with. We need to be plugged in with Christ. And what is this grace and mercy? You know, mercy is God's love that's shown to somebody that doesn't deserve it. That's what we need. That's the kind of love that we need because we do not deserve what he has given us. So, now I want to give you just a little picture of what this offer looks like. I imagine right now you're feeling a little like Alice, hmm? tumbling down the rabbit hole. I see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he has seen because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know, you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It's this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you want to know what it is? The matrix. The realm of the prince 
of the power of the air is everywhere. It's all around us, even now, in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window, when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is a world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. The truth that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. Take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. Take the red pill and he shows you just how far the rabbit hole goes. Like Morpheus in this scene from The Matrix, the Lord offers you the truth, but he offers you something much, much more. Now, finally, I'd like to talk to you about God's work. God's work in us and through us. You know, it's an amazing gift of divine mercy that God has given us. Um that we should be able to experience this kindness. We have no right to demand an explanation of why. Why did you do it? But we have such trouble trusting. We are very deficient in trust. It's a world where we can't trust because of um, its fallen nature. And so, the Apostle Paul has provided us in, in verses 7 through 10 with an explanation of why God has done this. So that, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And John Piper locally says that uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, which I think he's on to something. You see, the faith that we receive this incredible gift with is also part of the gift. It's God's gift as part of our salvation. So, two things that God is doing. The first is God is working in us. You've probably heard that most people that come to Christ come to Christ at a a young age. 
And that's true. Maybe Morpheus, again, has the answer. He apologizes to Neo a little bit after that scene, the red pill, blue pill, for giving him that red pill. He says, we never free a mind after a certain age. It's dangerous. The mind has trouble letting go. We become desperately attached to the world that's been pulled down over our eyes to what we believe to be true. And we, we don't want to let it go. Spurgeon, um, when he wrote about um, spiritual resurrection, which is what we're talking about, um, talked about the three times that we know that our Lord raised someone from the dead. The first was uh, the daughter of Jairus. And uh, the Lord had been called to attend on her because she was sick. And he was delayed because the woman with the hemorrhage um, grabbed his cloak and uh, stalled him. He didn't make it there in time. The girl died. He said, she's only sleeping. He went up into her room, took her hand, and said, Talitha kumi. Talitha kumi. Little girl, awake. But you know, as Spurgeon mentioned, this is a girl, young girl, youth of her life, hadn't done much that was wrong. She had just died, just stopped breathing. And you know, there's not much medically that we know that distinguishes between somebody that's alive and somebody that's just died. Something happens. They just, there's something that was there and then it's not. Like you're sleeping. This was what she's like, you know. You, this is a, when someone dies like that, suddenly and they're, they're not, they haven't been very, very sick, you know. It looks like they're sleeping. You, you, you caress them. You, you love them. You, you, you tell them to come back. Um, well, this was the state that she was in. This is sort of analogous to the state that we're first in when we die. Now, dead is dead. There's no turning back from being dead unless the Lord brings you back from dead. You have no power to not be dead. Okay? But there's something very different between that and what happens a little bit later. So the second um, miracle in which Christ raised someone from the dead was uh, a young man in the town of Nain. Now, this young man had been dead a little longer. There was a funeral procession for him. They were carrying the body out of the city gates. It's no longer a private matter, okay? He slipped farther into sin, okay? People know that he hasn't been walking the path, okay? Everybody knows he's dead. Nobody wants to touch him anymore. He's stiff. He's cold. And Jesus doesn't touch him. He touches the funeral beer. He says, young man, sit up. And the young man sits up. And you know what's different? The young girl was still wearing her nightgown that she had died in. This man was in burial clothes. He was prepared for the grave. He was being taken out of polite society. But then we come to the third resurrection And that was Lazarus. 
Now, Lazarus had been dead for four days. He was in his tomb. He wasn't just in his burial clothes. He was wrapped tight. And nobody wanted to go anywhere near him, even his beloved sister Martha. And she says, Lord, you don't, you, you don't want to go in there. He's been dead for four days. He stinks. Okay? Nobody. That's what happens as you get further in your trespasses, you know. And then you're so far gone that nobody in polite society wants to have anything to do with you. That's the rot that sets in as you embrace your sin and you are, you are taken over by this axis of evil. The flesh, the world, the devil draws you away and you progressively rot. So I'd like to give you another uh, little scene and that would be Ebenezer Scrooge as he confronts his old partner, Jacob Marley. Again, the specter raised a cry and shook its chains and wrung its shadowy hands. You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chains I forged in life, replies the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled even more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself. It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on its sense. It is a ponderous chain. In our dead state, we wrap ourselves tight with the works of the world. We build a little cocoon around ourselves so that we won't be hurt. We build up a callus. We wrap ourselves with these works and these chains. Getting rid of those chains. Getting rid of those connections, those things that we've built up over a lifetime, that's the work of sanctification. And that's a lifetime's work. But that is God's work working in us. And the way to that is through spiritual discipline. That would be prayer, reading the word, and then denying yourself, fasting. So... You have to engage in that work. That's what it means to run the race. To become more like Christ. Because how effective are you going to be telling people about new life running around in your burial gown? Not too effective. Then finally, I'd like to talk to you about God's work in us, through us. Um, Because God created us, or God did this wonderful thing for us, Not for you alone, but for a purpose. Now, this is a scene that's going to be coming out sometime in the next couple years as they complete the trilogy, The Hobbit. And Gandalf is going to say to Bilbo Baggins, I predict this, Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies just because you helped them come about. You don't really suppose, do you, that 
All your adventures and escapes were merely by mere luck, just for your sole benefit. You're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I'm quite fond of you, but you really are just a little fellow in a wide world, after all. You see, everything that we are, everything that we have, has been magnificently choreographed by the master. All our talents and circumstances, it's been woven together for you to do the work that he has laid out for you in advance. John Calvin wrote, it's faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. So our dream is not that we can live, but that we can yield a harvest for the Lord. I want to read you one last poem. This is by a 20th century poet, Myra Brooks Welsh. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good people?' he cried." Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar? One dollar? Do I hear two? Two dollars? Who makes it three? Three dollars once? Three dollars twice? Going for three? But no. From the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. Then, wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings... He played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now am I bid for the old violin? As he held it aloft with its bow. One thousand? One thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand? Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. Going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried, We just don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply. The touch of the master's hand. And many a man will, with life out of tune, all battered with bourbon and gin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. I'd like to say to you, where are you? Where are you in this journey? Okay? Is sin still working in you because you have yet to trust in Christ? Do it. Trust him. Maybe you've experienced his work for you. Choose the red pill. Don't choose the blue pill. 
Is he working in you? Are you still wearing your grave clothes? Get out of them. Put on your grace clothes. And if you have, by God's grace, been filled with his spirit, the fields are white with harvest. Won't you join him?